Hi everyone, today is September 21st, 2017. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's neuroscience podcast. Um, our guest today is Dean Buonamano. Hi, Dean. Hello, Salma. Yes. Um, he is professor of neurobiology and psychology at UCLA. His lab uses theory, computational modeling, physiology, optogenetics, psychophysics, all to look at how neural circuits in silica and even in vitro learn and perform complex computations like telling time and temporal processing. He's also the author of two books, Brain Bugs, How the Brain's Flaws Shape Our Lives, and a newly released one, mm -hmm. um, Your Brain is a Time Machine. I love that. The Neuroscience and Physics of Time. Do you want to sell some books? Do you something really cool? <laughs> Pick yours up now. No reason to start now. So. <laughs> okay, so um, around the room we've got Todd Troyer. Hello. Hi, Todd. We've got Charlie Wilson. Hi. And me, I'm your host, Salma Karashi. So, um, Dean, your work points to time, and I'm going to define it experimentally here and keep it kind of constrained. Um, so, for example, is the ability to, of the brain to um, do interval detection, for example, right? That's sort of um, kind of the model mm -hmm. system that we, we, we talked about today. Everyone knows we do talks, and that's where, that's where we sort of frame our discussions. Um, so you've talked about that capacity uh, as being written in the state of neural networks. So by way of introduction to what's like a, a pretty massive topic, can, can you explain kind of generally how intrinsic properties of local networks can produce that capacity in sort of a way that our listeners can sort of grasp without pictures? Yeah. Thank you for the challenge. Boom. Um, <laughs> I think first, just to give uh, a bit of context to the problem, yeah, I think the question is, is how do you do a simple interval discrimination task or duration, like a musical note, right? A musical note can be a one-eighth or one-sixteenth note. How do we know? How do we know that the symbol in a Morse code is short or long? And I think typically people tend to think, and neuroscientists um, included, of in terms of a clock. There's some clock in your brain that um, allows you to do those tasks. And by clock, what do we mean by clock? Do we mean a, something that just tells time? Or do we mean a clock that's something that tells time in a specific way? So when I say clock, do you guys think of a clock that's defined? What defines a clock? Is a clock defined by something that has an oscillator, oscillator. and used to tell time? Or something, anything that tells time? Well, I would normally think of a clock as a periodic thing. It would okay. allow me to, to count more than one interval. Yeah. Uh, so I could look at two intervals, five okay. intervals, ten intervals, yeah. and it would still be good out at... Good. I think that's... A, so clock is not something necessarily that tells time, but tells time in a specific way using an oscillator. Mm -hmm. And I think... So what we're trying to say is that that's not how your brain tells time. So as you said, Selma... The idea here is that the time, the brain is coding time or discriminating time, not based on the ticks of some hypothetical oscillator, but at the state of the network. So what do we mean by that? So anything that changes in time can, in principle, function as a timing device, as some way to tell time, whether it's a um, skier going downhill, right? So that follows the laws of physics, and the laws of physics are pretty stringent about the passage of time, right? So things have to happen. A ball has to fall from a certain height. 
um, in a certain distance um, within a certain amount of time. So you could use the state of the ball falling or a skier going downhill as the clock. So the point is, as the timing device, is that neurons are incredibly, neurons and neural circuits are incredibly dynamical um, systems. They're incredibly complex dynamical devices. So when we say that the brain is telling time through dynamics or the state of the system, what we mean is that <clears throat> maybe neuron 500 is on at the beginning of the stimulus and neuron 700 is on at the end of the stimulus. And if those neurons are part of a chain, like in the birdsong system that uh, Todd studies, one of the idea underlying um, timing of the birdsong is that you have this sort of chain, synfire chain, feed-forward chain of progressively active neurons, A, B, C, D, E. And that's a timing device, right? So in that way, that's one of the simplest ways to think about time encoded in the dynamics of a neural network. That's a wave. Isn't it? I mean, uh, certainly a skier going down a hill is a wave. How do you define a wave? What's a wave? What do you mean by wave? A wave is something that's changing in more than one dimension, so space and time at the same time. So in that sense, it's a wave. So a... Um, but mathematically, if you want to define that as a wave, I don't know, I think that's a bit different, a mathematical definition. Well, I'm not a <coughs> yeah. Yeah. so I wouldn't try to make a yeah. mathematical Okay, fair enough. So the... Uh, Besides, I know mathematicians just fight with each other all the time. <laughs> they don't Especially about the definition of waves. That's right. So uh, the bad thing about timing things with skiers going down the hill seems to me that they're not perfect. And the reason is every skier goes down the hill at a different speed. And the skier goes down the hill. And then they're at the bottom. And now if I need to time something after that, uh, I need another skier. So... Um, brain has it is willing to do something to, mm -hmm. to do its mm -hmm. timing in such a what mm -hmm. seems like a sort I mean, of crazily inefficient way. It's, it's an interesting point. Um, so first, the precision of the skier. Um, so I was looking precisely because of this uh, issue, I actually looked up like um, in the Olympics. So in the downhill skiing, what is it called? The, the slalom? The slalom? where you go down, um, it takes roughly two and a half minutes. The first eight skiers, I think this was in the 19 and the 2012 Olympics, I got that right. The first eight skiers arrived within a half a second of each other. So the precision is better than 1%. Oh, you're... Um, you should not go to the Olympics. You should go to the bunny slope. Yeah, yeah. But no, but, but give your brain some credit here. Give your brain. Let's say the brain is an Olympic quality athlete here, not 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 the learners. Um, so, so number two is we're not really that good at timing, anyways, Charlie. So, you and I have probably have a resolution of ten percent. So our clock. If I ask you to reproduce uh, one second on your stopwatch. You know, on average, we're probably around 10% or worse. So the truth is, is we're not that good at many forms of timing. Birds are probably a bit better. I, do you know the precision of a bird song? Oh, like zebra finches, they're like, they're like little clocks. No, they're like little machines. So do you think like, like 1%? Yeah, yeah. So if the song lasts two seconds, you think it will last two point? Yeah, standard deviation is, is uh, a percent or two. Yeah, so that's very impressive, um, indeed. And humans... 
um, on most things. Musicians probably get there. Musicians probably get there. Um, but most of us don't. So we're not as good as we probably like to think we are. Um, the second point there is it does seem inefficient in that you, it's hard to start midway, right? Same thing with the analogy I use um, in, instead of skis down the hill, sort of the ripples on the pond. So if you throw the pebble in, it creates these ripples. And if you need to quickly time something again, the ripples are there. It's hard to re-erase the ripples, right? And if the ski is coming downhill and, and they're halfway down and you want to start over, it's a problem. Now, um, so is this biological? Does this make sense? I mean, as you probably experienced, you can pretty, you're pretty good at starting again quickly. But what you're not very good at is starting at arbitrary points which is why if I ask what's the 17th letter of the alphabet or what comes after um, H or something, you a lot of people, not everybody, they start at earlier points. And if, or if you know a song, if you're a musician um, that plays the piano, unless you're really, really good, it's hard to start in the middle of that song, right? I'm not alone here, am I? Right. Um, so this is consistent with the idea that you are following some sort of trajectory. So it has advantages and disadvantages, but um, I think so. The brain once you get like in the in the case of this these feed forward chains that seem to contribute to timing. Todd can tell us if he was agree with that data or not. In the birdsong system, that you have these. Some people think of them as sinfire chains. I'm not too fond of that term, implying a feed forward chain of activity. Um, you, once you start, you go through that chain. For some reason, whatever reason, it's hard to start exactly in the middle. Um, but um, you can probably restart relatively quickly. Um, you don't have to go through the whole thing. You can abort. It's not too hard to abort and start again. But it's hard to start. And that seems to be a pretty stringent signature of, of our ability to create these complex patterns. What do you think of that data in the birdsong system? Well, I think it's pretty strong, actually. I mean, in the in the, the zebra finches are extreme, and so they're extremely regular, both in their sequence. They don't do any anything with their. There's no variability in sequence in terms of the stuff that people study. So it's completely stereotyped, and it's very regular. And actually, most of the timing is like global. Like some are faster the whole way through, and some are slower the whole way through. So if you could account for that, then there's really a lot. There's, then there's really uh, uh, you know, precise activity and timing. And the neural activity is incredibly sparse in the sense that most individual neurons really only participated one time uh, during this whole event. And so then it does, by necessity, kind of become a feed-forward thing because you don't come back and it's not different neurons at different times and everything comes back. But they're just extreme, I think. Uh, and so people don't study why, people are studying a little bit about how that develops. Uh, and then it seems more like there's strategies of a unit, like some birds take an, a protosyllable and do like A, 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 and they have a, a kind of an oscillation rhythm, and then it turns out to be that the version of A that comes before another version of A starts to morph slightly different A, A prime, and they, then becomes A, B, and then they kind of stretch it out. And so, you know, as much as we can tell during development, which it's hard to study, that 
we don't know how sloppy that is, but they sing a gazillion times in the same thing over and over again. So it's pretty extreme, uh, you know, in that way. But one of the things that, that's, that's interesting about, that's kind of the flip side of this argument about timing, uh, and I think it gets to the pink part of restarting and all this other, other kinds of things, is that they're the simplest task to do are where you have time between clear events. So you do all your experiments where something have like a click, and then nothing, and then another click. Or just a tone that goes on that's constant, and, still, and then it's off. And so never, like it's always clear what the events are that you are timing between. Uh, and there's a lot of things, like if you, I think it's easier to get think about mushy kinds of stuff on the motor side. Like you have to, you know, people talk about hitting a baseball or a, a, a tennis serve or any kind of complicated thing. You have to time all those things, but there's not necessarily a specific event. You don't do this and then, then that and then there's that. There's kind of more of a coordination of things, and some events are really are kind of very precise. But then there's other things that are rates and positions and stuff. And I was wondering where. It does seem in some of the neural activity that neurons do have either events or not. I mean, at least to some degree, people talk about transient responses, a big transient burst, and then you have a sustained response. And they talk about it, they at least have different words. Yeah, yeah. You know, whether they are really different things and whether they're this whole mechanism of resetting uh, to forget is hard and how they're the control of all that thing. Because to, to, to have these ongoing patterns, you have to have a start. Yeah. If anything else, and then presumably when it's over, you stop. Uh, and when you think about a clock, it's easier to think that they're all the same, and then you just pick up on any cycle and time it that way. But even defining that interval, in, I mean, not in the context of the laboratory, but in the real world, it's, a, it's such a fluid thing. So, for example, okay, you have patterned sequences where you know where the beginning is going to be and where the end is going to be, but what about instances like... Um, computing time to impact. I mean, that is sort of a, it's, just, it's something that gets updated and, you know, you're sort of projecting out, there's this prediction part of it, there's time and there's, you know, there's a lot of different dimensions of that. How, I mean, does, does that motor, I mean, everything I'm hearing from you is about output, output so far, but this is, uh, how do you sort of separate those two things from the internal computation? Well, I think one of the issues the timing field struggles with and has to come to terms with is what some of us have referred to as the taxonomy of time. And the analogy we make is, you know, in my opinion, and it's in my humble opinion, one of the most important breakthroughs in the field of learning and memory in the 20th century was simply understanding that learning and memory is not one problem. There's many different types. There's procedural, classical conditioning, declarative, um, and so forth. And that taxonomy of memory that, that others like Larry Squire made famous in terms of procedural, declarative, declarative semantic, declarative episodic. But in the timing field, clearly there's many forms of timing. I think some of you are getting to this, and I, I try to at least do my best to make the distinction between sensory timing and motor timing. And I think these deserve different subfields because I think they're probably, in many cases, not always, fundamentally different um, problems in your ability to, at the auditory side, discriminate between the duration of uh, two, two events and generate those um, in, in terms of whether 
it's playing the piano or whether it's hitting a baseball. So now part of that is what you also alluded to, which is anticipation. Right? I think in many ways that's maybe the most important. So hitting a baseball is a type of anticipation or time to impact is a type of anticipation. So you're, you're doing this forward projecting in time to predict when you should be where or what will happen where. So obviously that's incredibly important, right? So that's what incredibly evolutionarily adaptive to know when to duck or know when to extend your hand. So there clearly you have this active process of maybe running this network you have and somehow, I don't know, so, so, so in the bird song case, the, the male bird is producing the pattern. Is the female bird anticipating what notes should be coming next? Is she able to analyze the timing? So there's the motor timing and the sensory timing, but is, is there a predictive value on the sensory person side? And I don't know the answer to these questions. Well, there's some, there's some really cool stuff that we actually had in this podcast about, uh, well, you get a great example of that, of duetting uh, birds. Uh, where you get duetting birds, and then there are birds, and I can't remember the species actually, uh, in the kind of the, the rainforest, kind of the upper, the highlands near the rainforest that Eric Fortune is studying, where the male and female duet on the syllable by syllable level. So, wow. They go back and forth and at the a. The male and female? The male and female wow. both sing, and they fill in the other parts of the song, wow. and you can get sensory and motor responses. And, and Do duet. they. Always do the duet in the same sequence. Like the, the male has the same parts as the female, and the female has her parts. Or do they mix they, it up? Do no, they, are they jazz players, <laughs> or are they sort of symphony orchestra? Yeah, I don't know how it, how it works between when you switch your your partner and so forth. And I don't know how much they've studied because they don't do so super great in the lab. Yeah. Uh, it's really cool about, and then you can hear the part leaving out, and they kind of fill it in, and and, and mm. so forth. And really, you're talking about brain coordination that way between sensory and motor. That's a really extreme, cool, yeah, uh, uh, example. Um, so in that. a situation like that, or in this time to impact kind of question, if you're if you're running a simulation of the thing that in your brain, if you're running a simulation of the thing that is the sensory event that you're anticipating. You could be constantly trying to synchronize the speed at which you run the simulation with the speed at which the real event is happening. So in that case, there could be just a flow right, in a network. And then, uh, but you need to be able to speed up and slow down the flow so that it matches some sensory thing in real time. So that would be a... Yeah. Uh, a kind of timing is sort of consistent with the notion that you have of sort of a of a path yeah. of a network control the speed space, and the network is tracing some kind of path in its variable space, and then you could speed it up and slow yeah. it down a little bit. So in that case, it's like a, you're watching two skiers or something like that, and they're trying to adjust their speed going down the hill to get there at the same time. Yeah. So one of the things that gets complicated. So. I, I think to study this, it seems like you have to find a simple enough way to put these things in competition, to study two timing events that are either consistent or inconsistent, that you have interference and you study the nature of the interference in a way that you can kind of predict. Um, but it gets really 
it gets really complicated very fast, especially with the sensory motor thing. So one of the things about introducing the way that I think about songbird learning is that you have at least three representations of the song. Uh, so you have a memorized song that you're trying to copy in auditory things. You have the auditory representation of what the bird is actually singing, the young bird as he's learning to copy from memory. And you have the motor representation that's actually generating the song in the muscle um, pattern. And the, the key is to compare the auditory uh, signals to each other and then translate that into a fix of the motor uh, program. Yeah. Uh, but what's also happening is partly because of the timing things, you also have anticipation. So you have from the motor planning side, you have an anticipation of the sensory thing and you have the actual sensory thing that's coming. So you probably have at least four now representations, at least in that task. And even a general task, you'll have two or three that you can have mismatches between what you're anticipating and what actually happened versus uh, uh, when it comes in, which gets reset, do you ignore the thing that comes in because your sensors are noisy, or you reset your anticipation, and how much do you do that? Mm. And it gets to be hard to sort, right? So, uh, to follow up on one of your points, that you have these multiple representations, one is the template. One is the template that the, the birds have, juveniles have learned from their, their father. I don't know if there's much research on this, but is, is, do we know if you get the template, get the father's song, and scale it in time, make it fast or slow, do the juveniles learn that duration as well as the sequence and song? So if we got two juveniles, one played the fast version of the father, the slow version, their song durations will be totally different? Yeah, but I don't know how. I think people have looked at that to some degree. So you certainly can copy some durations and even some of the silences. I think there hasn't been studied in detail. So how far you can push it. Um, and I, so I don't think we know. Okay. I, there's evidence that they can learn that, you know, the copy the bunches of the temporal structure. Um, but whether how well and, and whatever, that's part of the problem is that they're very, they're very precise. And then the young bird will learn something that's not exactly the same. So if it's shorter, like if they learn a shorter syllable and it's, say the, the song is faster, maybe they just learned a short version of the syllable and they didn't get the end of it. Now it shifts everything. And so then they learn the timing. Uh, how do they encode timing? Is it really like a global timing of the whole duration? Or do they know the little intervals? And if you lose a bit, then then you shift everything. So all those things. Todd, in, in a synthire chain, the timing is set by the conduction delays between the layers, right? I mean, is that not right? Or, is or and the latency at the, the, at the integration latency. time of the neuron. It can also be set if the neurons are bursting. can be set by whether they burst and the degree of short-term facilitation. Because it could be the first spike doesn't do much. So, so it's originally it was thought that it was more the latency, but I think even in the bird song, you know, those cells burst. Um, the HVC neurons, the RA projecting neurons, they're bursters. So it seems to be that the bursting, if you look at the models at least, they they consider the bursting to be critical as setting the time delays. So the duration of the burst. So the, if you wanted to speed up the chain. So you can just make well, the connections. 
So there's, you can oh, make the connection yeah. stronger so the post-synaptic integration is faster. Uh-huh. Or you can, the time scale of how you're driving. Post-synaptic integration is, though, is determining time to the first spike in the burst, right? But how, how much the, bur- the length of the burst, not so much, but the, say the time in between the spikes or how you get them. And it's not all aligned anyway, right? Uh, in the sense that they're not all going off at, well, we don't actually know whether they're all going off at once. Of course, this is a, a model, right? right? The synfire chain is a model. It's not a yeah, but they have data about where cells are. All we know, like, are, is it tiling? The I guess tiling? I was asking about the synfire chain model rather than about the bird. Well, it depends on how you put it in. So, so you can make all. It's easier to describe if you have this layer and then that layer and uh-huh. then that layer. There's no reason to have. Layers, you just have a, per, uh, suppose you have a uniform distribution of So an easy time. way to just speed the whole chain up and make it all go faster, make it all go slow. An easy, no physiological temperature. Single temperature. Works, yeah. temperature works in the Versong. Uh-huh. Uh, make it speed but it up. And, it's a good question in terms of, to answer your question, you need to know what's, do you need to make it go um, double the speed, half the speed, so what's the range? So it's hard to imagine that by changing the synaptic strength or changing the leak conductance, maybe you have a neuromodulator, right? Um, but there's recently a model um, by Sean Scala um, in the basal ganglia that does the scaling by providing an external input. And the external input increases the firing rate which means those synaptics, those synapses depress quicker and then release the other element in the chain from inhibition quicker. So, and he can get that way a speed up of three or four. We have a model similar with firing rate models in which you have these complex dynamical patterns. So it's not the synfire chain, it's these complex dynamical patterns that can indeed go also a factor of four from from 50 to, to, to from 0.5 to 2 times. Um, and that's just coded in the dynamics. It's a bit harder to attribute it to just something like synaptic depression. But in these models, I think part so of... How do you speed them up and slow them down? By, and you have an external input that's sort of, you can think of it as speed. But what it's changing is the sort of the orbit of the trajectory. So when you give this external input, it sort of travels in an inner orbit and an outer orbit, and then it can sort of govern um, the speed that way. Um, but it's a bit... By taking the long way or the short way around. That's, well, yeah, that's the simplest way to think about it, and I think that's partially correct in the models. But in part, in ter- terms of these models what we, we, that we think of as, what we refer to these as population clocks. And the synfire chain is the simplest example of a population clock in that it's just spelled out in A, B, C, D. So that would just sort of be sort of the dominoes are falling effect. But the question, there's great evidence for that in the birdsong system. Now my view there is that, particularly in the zebra finch, the poor zebra finch basically only know one song. So if you want to just store one song, that synfire chain is fine. But if you want to store multiple songs, multiple patterns, my view is that synfire chains don't work very well because they're very inefficient in terms of the neurons 
how many neurons you need compared to how many patterns you need. So it's basically one, every neuron will only participate in one pattern if you have a SIMFIRE chain that's really feed-forward. I mean, there's going to be some exceptions there. Maybe we can talk about that. But um, the, the, the advantage of having these complex recurrent networks where they're not temporally sparse is presumably for one of capacity. Um, but do you think in the birdsong system you see these simple SIMFIRE chains because capacity is not an issue? Do you think if you had other birds that have met, know many, many other songs, like there are birds, I guess it's the cuckoos, right? Um, that, do you think those same, do you think you'd have a different approach? Do you think? Well, some of it's the question of how hierarchical you think of things, how stereotyped your pieces are, so you can have a pretty high capacity if you have little bits of things that are highly memorized and you have little snippets of chains and then you have to coordinate those. And so I actually think there's a continuum because one of the issues that you have with the population model, uh, in some ways to go along some path in some high, it has to be feed forward in some sense in terms of some going on. Functionally feed Functionally forward. feed forward for a little bit. And that's the way you need to control it. And so the question is, how does it, how much interference do you start to get from other things that you start to wrap around? And I think it becomes a continuum. And so it's, it's very easy when every neuron has its own time, then there's no interference. You change them at one time, you don't change anything in any other time at all because everybody has their own uh, time. Uh, when you start to wrap it around and reuse things more often, then what you affect in the local dynamics at one time, well, those same neurons and those same synapses are participating in other times. Presumably what you're changing is not coherent, so it doesn't screw things up too much. But if that, that's the same, that's just a version of the same thing about sparsity and distributed representations spatially about whether things are independent and you can mess around and associate things independently, but then you can't generalize and it's not flexible. Or are things distributed represented where there's lots of neurons active for any pattern? And that's great, but then you have interference. You can't do something. If you change one pattern, you, you have a tendency to change something else. And so you have these trade-offs, I think, and I don't know if they're the same in time or they are in space. I mean, they're certainly not the same mechanistically because you have different things controlling the relevant things. But conceptually, maybe they're not that different, that you want to be able to make things sparse and controllable uh, so that you can do things independently, but you only do that locally if you want to have high capacity, high flexibility, you want to be able to associate, reuse your parts and stuff like that. I'm not, I'm not sure what I just heard, but it sounded like you were saying that you could have, <laughs> you could have a sort of a sinfire chain and a, a one of these population networks superimposed potentially, even though you said something about the the mechanics of how they're connected are different. But I wasn't sure if that was sort of a neurally delimited connection or was it something about the. the well, bond? so if you have a sinfire chain, you think of different neurons. One group of neuron. Uh, 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 exciting the next group of neurons and the next group of neurons and the next group of neurons. And it's easiest if each neuron only belongs to one group, right? But there's no real reason that a neuron can't respond if the, it's kind of a catch-22, if the timing pattern is all laid out, you just have a neuron that goes off at 100 milliseconds and one goes off at 500 milliseconds, and it has to connect 
to the ones that go off at 110 milliseconds and the one that go off at 510 milliseconds. And so the ones that go off at 100 milliseconds are preferentially connected to the ones that go off 110 milliseconds. It still right. works. Right, so, but you could still have a recurrent network that was made up of all these neurons connected in SINFIRE chains that are that so sort of have their propagating activity, but then you still have the whole network to function in this. Yeah, if I may <laughs> say, I think part of the critical distinction here is if you want to call your SINFIRE chain a true feed-forward network or a functionally feed-forward network. So a lot of people define a SINFIRE chain, and I think I've tried to figure this out. If you go back all the way back to, I think the first person to use SINFIRE chain was Abelis, Misha Abelis. And I think they, the original definitions were they were actually truly feed-forward. Um, I don't know if you agree with that. Meaning that, yes, there's no, after I fire, there's no way back, that information can get back to me. Um, and there you're limited in the capacity. But I think what uh, Todd's saying is that, yes, you can have functionally feed forward if you play your cards right with the synaptic weights and inhibition, in which if you look at it, it's truly, it looks very much like a functional feed forward. But then it turns out if you have another pattern, those same neurons are participating in a different order even, right? Mm -hmm. Or in a different sequence at different times. Right? That's what you're, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's very, there, the, so we call both of those population clock, but in, then um, I think the only difference is how sparse it is. But clearly you have these high dimensional trajectories that could be functionally feed forward, but in, embedded in a recurrent network. And I, I, I happen to believe that's the case. I think it's an open um, question still about whether that's the case in the birdsong system, but I, I don't think it's a truly feed-forward network in the bird, birdsong system. Yeah, I don't know. Or I mean, synaptically the, speaking. Yeah, the thing I that, think, that I think the zebra finches. So it's part of the reason I went away from zebra finches and studied Bengalese finches that are variable sequencing because you can't get away. I mean, so they know multiple songs. They are, they have kind of probabilistic transitions. Uh, so you to first order you can have uh, A, B, C, and sometimes C goes to D, and sometimes it goes to F, and it branches, and then you have repeats that have a certain level. So it's not stereotyped exactly what order. I mean, the zebra finches are, occasionally they have different variants, but it's pretty sparse. Um, and so it, that, that makes you decide uh, and not be uh, a single linear chain. So people talk about branch change, chains and so forth, so if it goes to D sometimes and it goes to F some other times, you have a, a decision-making model uh, to decide to go to D and decide to go to F. That's, so I built some models of that. Basically, that accounts for some of the timing of the relationship between the duration between syllables and the probabilities that you get. And basically, all the decision models were basically wrong. I mean, they may be right for a small component of the timing, but they don't work. Uh, I'm not saying that that's not how the decision happened, but that wasn't accounting for the variability in timing that you see. So I don't, I don't know what it is, but I think there's a, in that system, there's a big thing where you have to, at least because there's bilaterality considerations and so forth, and there's elements that are syllables. So you have somewhere in the brain that you have these chunks that you're producing. Uh, and a lot of the SINFIRE stuff is more like you have timing within those chunks, or at least uh, several syllables in a row, so that you have some stereotype thing. You may read those out just like we do for sequences that we overlearn, like 
I don't know. If you learn the alphabet, my my younger brother thought that LMNO was one was, was one uh, <laughs> a letter. letter for That's a while. great. I love that. <laughs> you know, a, you know, elemental P. It's the one right. that comes before P. Um, yeah. And so, you know, if you have something stereotyped, then you can glue it together. And that the whole idea of temporal chunking is also an easy, an interesting thing about whether you convert the temporal representation when you overlearn something and chunk it just like you have for spatial chunking. And there's evidence that that does happen. And that may be more hard to pull apart in time and all these other kinds of things. So have you looked at any of that, of temporal chunking? Do you avoid that? No, I think that um, we haven't got the chunking. I mean, it's a bit arbitrary. I like your example of the alphabet, right? In another alphabet, maybe LMNO is the, is a letter, right? So, um, so I think the chunking comes down to experience-dependent plasticity in which order the relevant chunks, and then ordering those and how flexible we use those, right? So we can't, birds can't make certain transitions, and we have, and certain transitions are legal, and certain transitions are illegal in each language. Um, so in addition to learning the timing, you're learning the chunks and the transitions. But I think for motor coordination, um, depending on what your goal is, if you're a pianist, maybe these chunks are relevant. If you're um, a tennis player, maybe these chunks are relevant. So it's all, you know, sort of optimized in an experience-dependent way. So thanks for joining us, Dean Wanamano. Um, this has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me.